stories. The channel that tells you scary stories. Scary Stories by Peter Bernard. for a good scary story or two from the ace of spooky stories Mr. Creepo here so come on into Creepo's Grotto and we'll all have a good time and why aren't you a black cat you're not supposed to be in there come on kitty You know, being a serious UFO investigator really isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And if you're a UFO witness, heaven help you, all kinds of strange things are likely to happen. Let's take the case, for example, of John Clark, because things really started to happen the minute he had his UFO experience. The following is an excerpt from the book Strange Encounters, Bizarre and Eerie contact with UFO occupants. It's the case of John Clark, which contains just about every strangeness effect a UFO researcher is likely to run into during the course of a single investigation. Though we do not as yet know why certain individuals seem to attract the unknown, John Clark, in this respect, certainly turned out to be a paranormal from the book. In the classic film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, we see how the sudden appearance of a UFO eventually comes to radically change the lifestyle of Roy Neary. Following his brush with a pulsating craft, the power linesman finds he is the subject of considerable ridicule, even by members of his own family. His wife leaves him. His children are the brunt of neighborhood jokes. And he finds himself out in the street without a job because he was in the wrong place at the right time. And even though Close Encounters was basically a science fiction epic, almost everything that happened in the motion picture has transpired at one time or another in reality. The appearance of UFOs have indeed had bizarre effects on many witnesses. 
Take the case of John Clark. Things both good and bad have been happening all around him since he saw a landed spaceship way back in 1975. Clark was on vacation with his wife when he underwent an experience he is certainly not likely to forget. After the incident, John's life turned around. A truck driver for the San Francisco Chronicle, Clark won $40,000 in a contest, and he admits his luck may have had something to do with what transpired in that day many years ago in the Sequoia National Park. Unfortunately, John Clark's luck has not been all good. He maintains that his good fortunes are paralleled by negative happenings. For example, tornadoes have leveled hotels where he is staying, and in addition, several times the engine of a plane he will be flying in will cut off mysteriously. To date, John Clark has gone to see priests, psychics, and psychiatrists in an attempt to find out what has been causing these strange things to transpire around him. So far, no one seems to have all the answers. For Clark, it all began in the summer of 1975, when he was on vacation with his wife, and they have since divorced, but let John tell the story himself. And I quote, My former wife and I were camping with another couple. I heard something and woke up. I saw this thing, about nine feet tall, with long blonde hair, kind of illuminated, sort of gliding across the clearing. My friend saw it too and ran for his gun. Then it was gone. The next day, Clark says his wife took out a Ouija board and tried to communicate with whoever or whatever it was that had crossed in front of them during the night. Her hands began to move of their own accord, and little by little a strange message was given on the board. The board spelled out the name Huon, that's Q-O-N, indicating that it was a source of communication for the universe with a station positioned approximately five million light-years away in space. The Clarks had seen Bigfoot, an alien, that crashed there in 1863 from the planet Pluto. And it gets more bizarre. The message stated that Bigfoot was a vegetarian and lived in caves. And this is something we followed for a long time, uh, if you're interested in the Shaver mystery and the subterranean world, and we'll be talking more about that later on. It is said that the alien had been shot twice by humans. Shaken by what had been told through the Ouija board, John and his wife tossed the device into the nearest trash can. Perhaps they should have held on to it in order to sort out what was to happen over the next several years. As time went on, Clark became more disturbed over the session with the Ouija board and the sighting of this tall being. He went around consulting so-called experts. He went to see several ministers who simply told him that he had bumped into the devil. On the other hand, representatives of the Academy of Psychic Sciences, located in San Diego, strongly suggested that he had seen a mammal that had escaped Greenland during the Ice Age. Others talked in terms of ghosts and supernatural experiences, 
nobody seemed to have a heck of a lot of answers. Eventually, according to a column in the San Francisco Chronicle, Clark was placed into a hypnotic trance. The paper printed the session of what took place during the regression. Now you're back in Sequoia Park. The night it happened. You're going to raise your left hand and bring it across your chest, the hypnotist said. Now there's nothing to be afraid of. You can tell us what happened that night. Clark started to talk. His speech was like warm milk. I was surrounded by a blue light, a bright blue light. I was cold, he said. Did you feel any sensation, the hypnotist asked. I was being lifted, Clark responded. What happened then, the hypnotist wanted to know. I'm lying on a table. There's a bright white light above me. There's big eyes looking down at me. What color are the eyes? Yellow, big yellow eyes. They had black slits in them. I couldn't see their bodies. Could you feel anything? Something, something cold in my stomach, something sticking in and out of my stomach like steel pins. You mean like they were probing you? Yes, yes, that's what I mean. Can you remember anything else? No. John Clark is still not satisfied that he has all the answers. He plans to continue to probe deeper to find out exactly what happened on that night several years ago. We don't have the answers either. Maybe you do. Uh, I bet you that was a little bit more than the average person would like to handle in their lives. Well, outside of maybe that $40,000, but it went downhill from there. Wonder what John is doing these days, how his luck has turned, and whether he's seen <laughs> any more UFOs. UFOs and the Men in Black. Who are these strange men in black who have become so much a part of the unexplained aerial phenomena? Are they military agents? Do they represent a secret government? Or are they the entities themselves? Over the years, I have collected a vast array of cases related to the Men in Black. There are many types of actual entities or Men in Black that have been seen. John Keel, who has investigated these men in black cases uh, throughout the United States back in the 1960s while he was investigating a huge flap that was taking place uh, throughout uh, West Virginia and North Carolina, said that uh, he encountered stories of these strange MIB beings on many occasions while interviewing witnesses. These strange individuals, individuals have been known to warn UFO witnesses not to reveal what they had seen long before the case was even made public. Keel comments on the activities of these men in black by pointing out that many different investigators in flap areas have had experiences with the men in black, and only a small percentage of these cases have ever been published. There are several different types of men in black, Keel's notes. One group appears to be more psychic or hallucinatory than real. They appear and disappear suddenly in bedrooms, and the witnesses often experiences paralysis or a sudden rise in temperature during their presence. 
We now have dozens of cases in our files of these type of men in black. Another type now common throughout the U.S. is represented by men who travel in pairs. The same description is always given. One is tall and blonde, usually with a crew cut, fair-complected, and seems to be Scandinavian. His companion is shorter, with angular features and a dark olive complexion. The blonde usually does most of the talking while the other remains in the background. There seems to be several identical pairs of these individuals operating simultaneously in several states. Other types of men in black include men with dark complexions, slight stature, and a heavy, undefinable accent. These men sometimes pose as salesmen or poll takers. The witnesses usually regard them as a little strange, but think nothing further about them. Always ask witnesses, if you're investigating a UFO uh, in case, if they have recently received any unusual visitors or salesmen, but do not try to offer any descriptions. See what they actually have to say. See if the witnesses can collaborate descriptions as to what I've just described. Naturally, every stranger is not to be taken for a men in black. Other types of men in black include dark-complexioned, dark-haired females of about 18 years of age. Other MIB types pose as photographers and offer to take free photos of the witnesses' entire families. These MIB use various types of vehicles, including the well-known black Cadillacs and other cars, including assembly line Fords and Volkswagen. White station wagons have now been mentioned in a number of widespread incidences. This is what Keel tells me about his field research involving the men in black. In any case involving the men in black, researchers should not attempt to apprehend them alone. Do not attack them physically. Approach them with great caution. They frequently employ hypnotic techniques. Collect adequate testimonial evidence before reporting them to the local police or FBI. You must prove that these individuals are breaking the law before the authorities can take any action. In the case where the MIB dress in military uniform, researchers should contact local Air Force or military bases and determine the validity of their identification. In several cases, the Air Force impersonators have adapted the names of existing officers but changed the rank. Thus, when you check out a Colonel Robert Withers, you will find that a Lieutenant Robert Withers is actually stationed nearby and knows nothing of the incident. Concluding, Keel points out that a large proportion of all the available UFO literature is based upon hearsay and speculation that many of the real and important problems have been suppressed at the source by the witnesses themselves or have been ignored by the super, uh, superficial investigators who were concentrating on obtaining descriptions of the objects rather than studying all the events and factors surrounding the sightings. A massive body of sighting data has now been published but has gone uncollected. Many of the aspects which have occupied ufologists for years have proven to be misleading or have failed to contribute to a better understanding of the whole of the phenomena. UFOs represent only a small part of the much larger uh, phenomena which is now occurring on a worldwide basis. Investigating the history of UFOs, we find that the men in black have been with us for a long time. There are ca- uh, many cases uh, throughout the investigation of psychic phenomena that include reports of these strange individuals. We don't know who the men in black are, but they are threatening they have harassed witnesses, and we should be very warned to be very careful when dealing with them, for they are the men in black, agents of terror, terror, terror. terror.
stories involving crashed UFOs or spaceships from other worlds have become popular in the tabloid press. In 1947, in July, a UFO supposedly crashed outside the town of Roswell, New Mexico. But what did the craft and the alien occupants of this ship, what did they actually look like? Well, we have located a first-person account, which we published in the book MJ-12 and the Riddle of Hangar 18, The New Evidence. So I thought I would recount for you now exactly what a spaceship from another world and its alien occupants probably looked like. And this happened back in 1947, but still would be fresh in the minds of those who were there. The stricken craft. The craft looked like a huge saucer, measuring just a fraction short of a hundred feet in diameter. From the outer tip of the rim to the surface of the ground, it measured 27 inches. There was a large cup-shaped projection set in an inset in the bottom of the saucer. The witnesses that were there assumed it was a cabin. It was entirely round, 18 feet across and 6 feet high. There were six round portholes evenly spaced around this cabin with glass-like windows, but it wasn't glass. The only marking of any sort on the exterior of the ship was a small crack in one of the portholes, which had apparently been caused by a collision with some object in our atmosphere. It seemed to offer the only chance of obtaining entrance into the craft. One of the men located a strong metallic pole with a sharp point at one end and with the help of others began probing and pushing into the damaged porthole. After a few minutes of pressure, they managed to ram a hole through the defect. Now able to appear inside, they could make out the shadowy shapes of sixteen small bodies, apparently lifeless. By prodding around with a large pole, they were able to locate a knob-like protrusion along the wall opposite the broken porthole. It was actually a double knob, which yielded to the pole's pressure and to the surprise of the scientists caused the door to fly open. Now they could enter the ship from another world. The aliens! What about the aliens? The little bodies were taken out on the ground for a thorough examination. Ranging in height from 36 to 42 inches, they seemed to be normal from every standpoint as compared to humans. They were not like midgets on this planet. That is, they had heads that were much smaller than ours and in perfect proportion to their miniature bodies. Their skin seemed to be charred, a very dark brown, leading the examiners to detect that they had been burned as a result of air rushing through the broken porthole at a tremendous rate, heating the interior through friction. The UFO beings appeared to be about 35 to 40 years old by our standards of age. Later studies by medical scientists revealed that they were in all respects perfectly normal human beings except for their teeth. There wasn't a cavity or filling in any mouth and their teeth were a hundred percent perfect. As to clothes, they all wore the same kind of uniform, a dark blue garment with metal buttons. There was no insignia of any kind on the collars, sleeves, or caps. Simple caps with a plain visor. Then began the examination of the ship itself. 
The metal body was similar in appearance to aluminum, though it was apparently impervious to any of our cutting tools. In the curved interior of the cabin was what appeared to be an instrument tra panel with an array of push buttons. The scientists were driven by a desire to solve the mystery of how the ship was propelled. Some of the staff suggested experimenting by pushing the buttons on the panel, but after a brief discussion, it was decided that it could be dangerous. If the ship started, no one would know which button to push to stop it again. That would be a free ride into the cosmos, wouldn't it? <laughs> there were two bucket seats, as the doctor called them, in front of the instrument board, and two of the little creatures were sitting there slumped forward on the instrument board. It appeared that this ship, if flying on magnetic lines of force, must have had an automatic type of control so that it, when it came into danger or when its occupants were not in position to operate the ship, it simply settled automatically to Earth. The investigators could not determine when or how the port window had been cracked or at what possible point in space the occupants had died, but the fact remained that they were dead either from burns or from the bends caused by atmospheric pressure changes. Mysteries of the spaceship. Certainly we want to know more about the craft itself. So here's what the investigators found out. On further examination of the interior of the UFO, the Earthmen were elated to find a number of booklets which they believe probably dealt with navigation problems. Then they realized that the writing, a pictorial type of script not unlike ancient Egyptian hier hieroglyphs, could be very difficult, if not impossible, to decipher. All of these booklets, if that's what you want to call them, were turned over to certain officials of the Air Force, who in turn reported they were going to have them placed in the hands of experts. As far as the scientists on the project could learn later on, no progress was made in deciphering the strange language. They found no maps of any sort. As far as they could make out, there were no instruments of destruction, nor any firearms or other weapons. The doctor, he was one of the main investigators, pointed out to his staff that weapons could hardly be necessary to these beings, because if the ship had been operated magnetically, it unquestionably had the means to demagnetize any object, from an asteroid that crossed its path to an F-80 fighter plane that might attack it. The demagnetization would completely disintegrate the obstacle. This, of course, would apply to human beings on Earth or any form of matter with which they came into contact on this planet. As for the construction of the UFO, the outer skin seemed like our aluminum, but on all tests later made, it did not match any form of aluminum we have on Earth. It was so light that two or three men could lift one side of the craft off the ground. On the other hand, it was so strong that as many as a dozen of them had crawled up on top of the wing and made no impression on it whatsoever. Then came a major decision, how to move it out of there. The Air Force officials finally decided to try to dismantle it, as it was far too big to move otherwise. But how to break it apart? There were no rivets, no bolts, no screws, nothing on the outer skin to indicate how the ship was put together. After a long study, however, it was found that the ship was assembled in segments. The segments fitted in grooves and were pinned together initially around the base. 
The engineers were able to lift the cabin section out through the bottom of the saucer and were amazed to find a huge gear completely encircled the bottom of the ship. This gear neatly fitted into the another large gear that was on the cabin. The whole thing was very ingeniously put together and it had to be taken down very carefully. After breaking the UFO apart, it was moved to a government testing laboratory where it remained for a considerable period of time while the parts were being tested. The main investigators said that they had been able to keep it intact long enough there might have been a time when they could work out a plan to analyze the different push buttons on the panel. These, he was certain, held the clues to the magnetic form of combustion developed when the ship was in flight. No one knows where this object was uh, eventually stored, but rumors have, of course, uh, been circulating for many, many years. Does the United States government or any other foreign power have a spaceship from another world that landed here on Earth? In all probability, they probably do. And that's the secret and the riddle of Hangar 18. Remember that night and the UFOs. Check out the audio podcast version of Scary Stories NYC, now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and other popular podcatchers. Bigfoot Attacked My Tiny House. Scary Stories by Peter Bernard, Volume 1. Now available on Amazon in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook versions. Narrated by P.Q. Ribber and me, Madeline Starr. Forward by TV's famous Timothy Green Beckley, better known as Mr. UFO. And if there's anyone out there who can't get enough of PQ River, search in your favorite search engine for PQ River, and you'll find plenty of podcasts, music, and weirdness. Come back, come back, come back, come back for more scary stories.